Well, from the time that you get from the end of the Old Testament, the last book that we see in our Old Testament scriptures is a book called Malachi. And between Malachi and this moment where we begin to see God speaking through angelic beings or speaking into the lives of people and commissioning them to do something, there's now 400 years that has passed between the Old Testament times and this moment that I have just read to you. Without a word of prophecy, without a deep, dark, or a glorious voice of God reigning from the heavens, without a shine of light for four hundred years, the people of God sat in silence, as, or they sat as God was silent toward them. Many of them were in darkness. There were very turbulent times um, for the, the Jewish people over those course of 400 years. Generation after generation after generation passes, and yet the people of God heard absolutely nothing. I don't know about you, but I get a little bit impatient about God not answering my prayer when I'm just driving down Scottsville Road right now trying to get somewhere, praying that all of a sudden I could say something and the traffic would just split and allow me to drive down that highway. But it hasn't happened. And I've become impatient in the waiting of lines or the waiting at restaurants and all the hustle and bustle that is taking place within our beautiful city. I, I get impatient in that, and yet the people of God here have been waiting for four hundred years desiring wanting God to move and what happens when we begin to to wait especially in a culture like ours that has uh, really gratified itself with instant things you know we have um, you know from microwaves our smartphones to now coffee is instant it's one cup stick it in there pop it on the Keurig and and there you go we want information and knowledge and the truth to come to us immediately, yet we hate to wait. The people of God waited. In a very spiritual sense, they waited in darkness. In a very spiritual sense, they were once again in the wilderness, wandering. Their faith in a thousand-year-old stories had begun to maybe shake a little bit. Maybe there were questions. Maybe there were doubts. Maybe there were misinterpretations that began to embed themselves into the lives of the people of God. As culture became stronger and they were more and more enslaved, maybe, just maybe, as they lived in this darkness, their, their faith began to wane. Darkness is you throughout Scripture to refer to sinfulness, evil, a place void of God's love. It can literally mean the shadow cast upon something or literally a sphere of which light is absent. When a man is in darkness, he loses his sense of control. He wanders around aimlessly and when, uh, with uncertainty because his ability to see is severely limited. In darkness, a man is blind. We're not created like some animals are out there where we can see in the night. We cannot. Our ability in darkness, we become very vulnerable, don't we? We begin to stumble. We no longer know our identity, which can cause great fear within our lives. Last week, I was going on a, a hunting trip with my brother-in-law and my dad and my uncle. 
and we try to do this about every other year, and I had taken these totes out of the attic. I have two totes that are filled with hunting gear, and I placed them inside Laura and I's bedroom as I was moving stuff around, repacking, adding things to these totes. And on the night before I was fixing to leave, I'd set those totes there, and, and I, I'd put them, I thought, strategically um, throughout our room. And in the middle of the night, my wife decides that she needs to do what you do in the middle of the night. She goes to the bathroom, and at some point in the dead of sleep, because I'm a very heavy sleeper, I wake up to my wife yelling and screaming and rolling all over the floor, grabbing her leg. Because she had forgotten that the toe, and of course it was my fault, right? It perceived to be for the rest of the time, how, how could you put these totes in the room? All right? I mean, she's crying. Tears are flowing from her eyes. She even showed me the bruise again last night on her shin. I mean, she has a big, nasty, purple bruise. Why? Because she could not see. She could not remember their path. And now there were obstacles in the darkness that were keeping her from achieving her objective. So there was screaming. There was yelling. You know, things scare us way more in the dark, don't they? I mean, watching a good thriller or a mystery movie in the middle of the day with the sun shining in just isn't the same effect that you will get at nighttime or when the lights are off. See, our emotions, our imaginations seemingly are very acute at nighttime. And if you're sitting in your house, and it's again in the day, and your house settles, you know, it makes that creaking noise like it's shifting a little bit, you think nothing about it. But at one o'clock in the night, if that happens, you immediately like, oh, somebody's in my house, right? What's that noise? I mean, grown men have been known to grab flashlights to shine down the hallway and look at their wives and say, you need to go check that out. I mean, these are the sorts of things that happen in darkness, in the night. Psalm 82, 5 says, they neither knowledge nor understanding, they walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaking. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Jesus spoke of darkness in a simple way, in a bad way, when he said this in John chapter 3, when he said, men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Even hell itself is described as a place in Matthew 25, 30, um, as outer darkness where there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. See, all throughout Scripture, we see this image that bad things go bump in the night, right? Darkness is not good. It is unholy. We become wavering in our faith and in our understanding when we are living in the darkness. And I think that we can definitely say that during this first Christmas season, the people were extremely spiritually dark. Rome was at powder, in power, and the Jews had wandered from the truth. They had become very legalistic, very uh, religious, and the people were drowning in a sea of darkness. When we look at Luke chapter 1, verse 5, immediately we get a character here. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. This helps to paint a picture of how dark it was. This guy named Herod, he was the king. He was 
name was Herod the Great. He is considered to be the greatest king to ever reside in the Middle East. Like most geniuses, this man was mad. He was mad. This genius of a man was also a madman. Um, Herod was considered to be a half-blooded person. And the reason for that, it was his dad had, and his family lineage had converted to Judaism, but his mother was an Arab. The Romans and the Jews were in great turmoil during this season of life. There was always the threat of civil war, always the threat of the Jews wanting to overtake Roman authorities. And so Herod came up with this great idea, and he went to Rome, and he convinced the Roman government to allow him to go back and to be the king of the Jews. Well, they obliged because he's somewhat Jewish, right? And so he goes back and he decides that he is going to overthrow the king because he has the Romans' authority to do so. And so he goes back to Jerusalem and he overthrows the king that was in place. And, and just to, to eradicate the earth of the knowledge and the philosophies of that king, he had everyone and anyone that had to do with that former leadership killed. Herod sought power at all cost. He was a control freak. See, he desired that his name would live forever. He wanted to be placed among the gods. He wanted people to worship his name. And, and in some ways, we have a lot to attribute to this man named Herod. He was an amazing architect. He had the ability to see things that other people could not see. If you've ever seen the port of Caesarea Philippi, you will see that nothing was there, and now it is considered to be a deep sea port. And the man had it built by hand. He was extremely uh, visionary. He had a very dedicated mission on the side of Masada. It was a huge mountain. He built this huge mansion overlooking the sea and all of these rocks. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. Right outside of Bethlehem, he, there was a piece of flat land, and he decided that he wanted to build a mountain. So literally, you can look this up. It's called the Herodian. He had, I guess, one bucket at a time, had people, his slaves, literally in the midst of the desert, casting a shadow upon Bethlehem, built a mountain. And on top of that mountain, built this huge mansion with all of these pools and these mosaics. I mean, it was a complete work of art. This man was a genius, and yet this man was mad. He sought power. He was ambition and ambitious, and this ambition drove him literally crazy. He craved power so much that he was in a constant state of paranoia, believing that people were constantly plotting against him. At one time, he, he felt like his wife, whom he deeply loved, she was supposedly extremely beautiful, he deeply loved this woman, and he felt like she was plotting against him. And he went away for a trip, and he got to believing that she was having an affair. And through this, decides that he is going to murder and drown her brother. And so he does so. You ever been in a pool wrestling with guys or hanging out when you were kids and you kind of dunk each other? Well, literally, her brother was in a, a pool hanging out with friends, thinking everything was cool, and they started dunking each other. 
knowing all the while that Herod had commissioned him to be killed. And while they were playing, they kept dunking him and dunking him and dunking him and holding him under until he drowned. Well, his wife found out about this and obviously became extremely upset at Herod for having her brother killed. So in doing so, because he felt like his own wife was plotting for his power, he had his wife also executed. Not to just be done there, he pretty much had all of her family executed, and then eventually their two sons also executed because he felt that they were also coming against him. This search for power, this desire for ambition, this desire to be in control literally made this man insane. At his deathbed, he knew people hated him. So he had his guards go out to the areas throughout Judea and to capture well-known, popular Jewish leaders and had them imprisoned. And he commissioned that on the day of his death, what he would do is, is that he would want, as soon as he died, for every one of those leaders, Jewish leaders, to be killed. So that there would be wailing and mourning and loss throughout the region. So that someone would cry upon his death. Now luckily, after he died, some very wise leaders let those men free or it would have killed about a thousand men, I think is the, the estimation there. He became so frightened for power and feeling like people were coming against him, he so desired it that he even got wind and that he knew the Old Testament enough to know that there was supposedly one day a baby that was going to be born in the city of David, in the city of Bethlehem. And he had gotten wind from some wise guys that this baby had been born. And so the Bible tells us, especially in the, the Gospel of Matthew and its birth narrative of Jesus, that Herod became so frightened of these little babies that he commissioned out that all boys, all male children from the age of, of birth until two years old must be killed. We're talking about generational genocide here. This is dark. This is not, you know, clean baby Jesus. You know, mother who just given birth. Happy, you know, halo behind her head. Joseph just standing there. The birth narrative is one that, that exudes or it, it is conceived out of darkness. Out of society that is extremely dark out of a society that is, is heading in an unbiblical way, out of a society that is being governed by unbiblical leadership. And yet, this is when Jesus came. In this, we, we see in these mass killings, we can only imagine for a moment that you go home tonight and you're sitting around watching television, eating leftover turkey casserole where you just take all that stuff and you mix it all together and you bake it again and it's something new. And all of a sudden you hear people knocking at your door and they bust down your door to take your little boy. This was a dark scene. It was a dark, dark moment. Luke continues this story as, as we read, telling us about a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. They were faithful in many ways, and yet Elizabeth 
was barren, and they were both in old age. Zechariah would have been about one of 8,000 priests during this time. These priests would, would, for one week, twice a year, would go to the temple, and they would work in the temple. It was this major rotation that they were in. And the Bible tells us here that, that it was time for Zechariah to go and to work at the temple. But we see this picture of well of a, a woman who is barren. You know, to us, this causes a lot of emotional distress for a lot of ladies who cannot conceive children. But even more so during this time. For a woman to be barren like Elizabeth, she would be considered a, a social outcast. She would have been judged. She, it would have almost appeared as though her and Zachariah had sin in their life, which was causing them not to be able to conceive. And at this moment, they're extremely old. It hung over their lives with great disappointment. Zachariah and Elizabeth, this was their personal darkness. So Zechariah is commissioned to go work his week at the temple, and in doing so, they would have two daily worship services, and literally, they would kind of cast lots to see who got to go into the holies of holies, where the presence of the Lord dwelt, and to, to offer up incense to the Lord. So they cast lots, and in doing so, Zechariah was chosen. This experience was the experience of all priests. This was the most monumental moment in these men's lives. They, out of 8,000 priests, they longed to be the guy. They longed to be the person to be able to go into the holies of holies for the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to offer worship and sacrifice and to burn incense to God. And Zechariah was chosen. Once you had this opportunity, you were never allowed to do this again. This was a once-in-the-lifetime opportunity. And Zechariah, in astonishment, is the one that is chosen on this particular day. The Bible tells us there in that passage that we read as he entered into the Holy of Holies that the angel, the angel Gabriel, came and appeared to him, telling him that Zechariah and Elizabeth would bear a son and that his name would be John. And he would be the kid. He would be the man. That the Old Testament had prophesied, saying there will be one that will come that will prepare the way of the Lord in his coming. And these things will be a sign to you that, that when you see this guy come upon the scene, and when he begins to preach and to teach and to call the nation of Israel into repentance, then you will know that the Messiah is near. So he steps into this, this room where the power of God is, is thick, and then the angel of the Lord, 400 years they had not seen anything like this. 400 years they had not heard anything from heaven. It had been silent until this very moment, but in a very dark time, in a very dark environment, in a very dark culture, the power of God shows up in a perfectly sovereign opportunity. Zechariah, what's his response to this? He begins to question, begins to doubt the promises of God. How can this be? I am an old man. My wife is old. 
See, instead of entrusting in the promises of God, Zechariah trusted in the darkness of his life more. To discipline, what does he do? God does not allow him to speak. Now, I know some wives in here are like, man, that'd be a great blessing to me if my husband couldn't speak for nine months. But in this situation, for nine months, he was not allowed to speak until John was born. See, to discipline him because God loves him, this is what God does. He struggled in his faith. He doubted his faith. See, in, in this story so far, we've kind of seen two different characters. We've, we've seen a rebellious madman, an insane madman, and we've seen a religious priest. Yet, these men are extremely similar in their sins. They're the sin of disbelief. See, one had misplaced hope and one had lost his hope. The misplaced hope. See, like Herod, I don't know about you, but I, I really want to be the master of my own domain. I want to kind of be king of my own life. Um, the God of ambition can be overwhelming for us. We want to build our own empires on money and power and success. The lust for power and ambition can lead us to form all sorts of gods in our lives and to worship those things. Because we have ambition or, or, or ambition becomes our God or control becomes our God or power becomes our God, we can build uh, worship and, and begin to idolize things like money and power and intimacy and even our families. You know, other than Die Hard, my other favorite Christmas movie is Christmas Vacation. And in doing so, I, I have, if you've seen Christmas Vacation, um, I have within me some Clark Griswold. See, Clark, without this movie, inside this movie, all he wants to do seemingly is to create the perfect experience. He wants to be in control of everything that happens at Christmas because he wants to create for his friends and his family an opportunity for them to really connect. And so every light has to be perfect. The tree has to be perfect. What they wear, what they do, their itemized list, all of these things must be perfect. And it appears as though it is for his family. But we quickly realize by the end, don't we, that it's really about Clark. That it's really about him. See, when our earthly idols begin to crumble, they reveal who or what is the true king of our lives. You get that this morning? When our earthly idols begin to crumble, and I think kids can be great things, wives, husbands, family, Christmas presents, all of these things can be great things. But when our government, when our society, when things that we think should be going in a certain way, when they begin to crumble, it truly reveals who or what is the true king of our lives. See, the darkness of sin, Satan, and death is, is not always seen clearly. Many times, darkness influences us in very subtle ways. Typically, it's not a catastrophic event, uh, even, you know, even as, as we've seen as having our babies ripped from our arms, but rather convincing us not to trust in the promises of God. We must fight every moment to trust in these promises. Sin, Satan, and death want to distort the truth. They want our faith to wane. They want us to find our happiness, our joy, and all these things in something else 
See, I don't know about you, but I love Christmas. I have ever since I was a small kid. I love Christmas tree cakes. I love lights. I love putting up the tree. I love watching my kids open up their Christmas presents. Confession, our Christmas tree has been up for about two and a half weeks. Christmas music has been playing since we put up the tree. I literally am a grown man driving around in my truck listening to things like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, screaming it to the top of my lungs, even with the ad-libs, like, like a light bulb. I mean, <laughs> I'm throwing it all in. Like, I grew up every night, pretty much from Halloween to Christmas, with my parents listening to Bing Crosby on a cassette tape jam box. And if you know what that is, you're old. All right? And so I love it. My mom still to this day will do something with like cinnamon red hots and she puts it on the oven and she like, like cooks them and it makes the whole house smell like cinnamon. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Like I absolutely love Christmas. It is the most wonderful time of the year, isn't it? However, I would contend to you, you need to get this. I need to get this. I would contend to you that there is not a season in our year that is competing for your affections more than this season we're in. There is more competing for your joy. There is more competing for your happiness. There is more competing for your satisfaction in this season than there is in any other time of our year. It is a season where we celebrate things like gluttony and consumerism. We celebrate things like poor stewardship. We have great anxiety over, did we get the right gift? And can I make it to all of the right parties? Can I do all of the right things? Power, money, wealth, consumerism, gluttony are all waging war for our hearts. It's evident. You can do research on this, but the Bible Belt, did you know that it is the most violent place that you can live during Black Friday? The Bible Belt. Right? Bible on the dash, driving to Walmart in the middle of the night to throw punch some woman over some Tupperware. Right? I mean, when the national news this week was what? From Lexington, where a massive fight broke out over a sale. I mean, I feel that tension. I don't know if you do. I like stuff. I like to create an empire. I like things. And it's not that having things is bad, but when those things become our gods, when we have you know, misprioritized our hope. And when we place our hope into things instead of someone named Jesus, then we have missed the mark. We have missed the point. We notice that the Christmas season begins to start early and earlier. And instead of sitting around the table at Thanksgiving, we feel the pressure to to go and to get something. We're surrounded by newspaper clippings, right? Like, I have to force myself not to go. Because I feel like I'm missing something. I mean, it, it, might as be, it might as well be a drug laying out in front of me. And to feel that tension of, man, I really need another gun. 
or man, I really need another this, or I really need another that, even if we have several of them, but if I can get this at a good deal, then why shouldn't I go and get it? See, Herod had placed his hope in his kingdom. Herod had placed his hope into his intellect. Herod had had placed his hope into his power and the things of which he can control and the the power that he could have inside of this world. And yet there's this other character as well that we see in Zechariah that he is not rebellious, but he is religious. The Bible tells us there that Elizabeth and Zechariah are pretty good people. They're very faithful in many ways. And yet when, when God spoke against something that was unimaginable to them, They lost their hope, even if it was for a moment. Even for a moment in time, they lost their way. They lost their hope. See, the very first Christmas was dark. Yet in the midst of darkness, something was about to change. When I think about Zachariah and Elizabeth, I I think a lot about my my sister and Todd, as many of you guys know, are still trying to adopt Wiesben. And though Wiesben officially is a hazel, you know, when Todd met Wiesben, what, si- almost six years ago, he was like eight, eight or nine years old. And we thought as a family, man, within the first year, maybe two years at the max, we would be able to have this child. And yet I want you to know, even as a, a bystander, even as an uncle standing off center, man, it has been interesting to watch this this struggle of the ebbs and the flows of wanting your child and it being so difficult to get them. Having moments of great hope and moments of great hopelessness. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen. And man, whatever that is in within your lives, It is easy for us to trust God in the things that come easy to us. It is difficult to trust God when we cannot see what is out in front of us. This this week, I just confessionally had a really tough time. Again, I was driving around by myself, and I was heading somewhere, and I got to thinking about my son, and I got to thinking way too far out in the future about Cash. In case you don't know, we have a little boy with special needs, cerebral palsy. He's nonverbal. He's 11, about the age of mentally of about a three or four-year-old. And he's sick this morning. I mean, he got really sick this week. And whenever he gets sick, he's just very lifeless. And he's vomiting, high fever, all these sort of things the last few days. It's been really tough on us. And I got to thinking about Cash, and I was like, you know, one of these days, I'm going to become old. My Elizabeth, Laura, is going to become old. And who's going to take care of him? Is he going to be put in some home? No one's going to love him as much as I love him. I got to think about it. I'm feeling sorry for myself more than feeling sorry for him. I got to think about all the things that he's going to miss out on. You know, that first kiss, 
that you're not supposed to have. The first time your parents throw you, for me, it was like a Cadillac DeVille, big hoopty ride. It would be like cool now, but it wasn't then. It was cool for parents. And I got my license, and my, my parents throw me the keys. And you never know what it's like to see the back doors of that church fling open and for some woman to walk down saying, man, I, I give you my life. See, I'm cool with God being in control of church. It's his. I'm cool with knowing I'm going to eat today. How about you? Like, I could probably do the fast. I, ju I jumped on the scale, and he just said, fat, earning, get off, all right, this week on Friday. But the things that become really personal to us, that's when it can be really easy for us to lose hope. Can be really tough. This is a similar scene to what is happening here. See, God is speaking into something. Can you imagine if this lady is in her 80s? She's been grieving. She's probably been married to Zachariah since she was a teenage girl. And she has been grieving for years for God to heal her. For years. They hear nothing. She's getting a picture here. She is, she is outcast. She is made fun of. She is thought less than. And what do you mean, after all this time, God, I'm, we're going to have a kid. See, don't judge Herod. Don't judge Zechariah. Because we are much more like them than we are Jesus. And yet, in the midst of this darkness, dawn is breaking. When we get the first glimpse, I, I see a lot of sunrises. I never thought I would say that as a teenager. But I'm at the stage, I'm the old man who gets up every morning, and I see almost every sunrise. And there's this moment in where everything is dark, especially when you're in the middle of the woods, like I've been lately, where everything is dark. There's not a bird chirping in the middle of the night. There are not squirrels running around. But at the moment, at the fraction of a small beam of light in those dark woods. I want you to know that everything within that darkness begins to move and to come alive. Instantaneously, you will begin to hear insects and birds and squirrels and things rustling around at the very fraction of a moment of light. In that darkness, things become alive. The Bible tells us on over in, in Luke, if you flip over one, excuse me, it's, it's still in chapter one, 
But on over, it tells us here at the very beginning of chapter verse 57 that the birth of John the Baptist is taking place and Zechariah is freely given this opportunity to speak. And after all of these months of not being able to do so, listen to what he says. I don't have time to read it all. But at the very end, he transitions from speaking about John, his son, to speaking about the coming Messiah. And this is what he says in chapter 1, verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. With the birth of John, the coming of John is foretelling, it is preparing the way of the Lord, that Jesus is coming and that Jesus is this light. In Malachi 4.2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, now rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves, from the stall. Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Colossians 1, 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Later on in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. I love this passage. He says this. This is the message we have heard from him who declared to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light, and we are to merely reflect that light and to be smaller versions casting off the glory of God from our words and our deeds to the rest of the world. So in a world that is completely immersed in darkness can begin to see again and to see the hope that is not in some philosophy. It is not in some intellectual agreement. It is not in church membership alone, but hope is truly found in a person and his name is Jesus. Do you know that hope? With whatever is going on. With the raising of children, with a financial collapse, with a, a government that has gone wayward, with people who would both rip babies from their mother's womb, but also a man who would go to those places and kill. Both are evil. People who work for us. Our hope is not found in those presents. They will be sold at a yard sale. Our hope is not found in a perfect meal. Our hope is, is not found in literally what we can see, but our hope is found in Jesus. And I, I compel you this morning to, to not lose sight, even when it, you are being 
oppressed, even when, when the darkness has become very weighty upon you and the burden of its oppression carries much baggage in your life. May you give thanks and hope and trust in Jesus. Realize that your empire is an empire of dirt, and from dirt it will return. And, and also that you will not lose your hope, but in all things may your hope be found in Jesus. When it becomes waving, when it becomes questionable, know it. Trust it. As we said in the, the reading earlier that hope is not a hope it does happen. It may happen. But true hope is a security in knowing it will. And if you place that hope in Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that you will never be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. You will not <laughs> build a kingdom centered around yourself. But you will desire above all things to advance his kingdom. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. As this earth continues to build its earthly mansions and towers of Babel as reflections of their own power, the true king of the world is born in a stable. Covered in used hay, placed into a feeding trough for animals. To prove that it is not about those things. But it's about him. May your hope this Advent season be found only in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.